Train, eat, repeat. The knowledge and know-how you need to live well. Here's your host, Tyler Ferrand. Hello, everyone, and welcome back into another week of Train, Eat, Repeat. So glad you guys are with us. If you're with us for the first time, welcome on in. We cover topics around exercise, nutrition, and mindfulness, and present it in a way that is easily digestible and something that you can repeat yourself on your journey towards living a more optimal life. If you guys are just tuning in or if you're a guest that's been with us for a long time, Thank you. Make sure you go in and hit that subscribe button. Leave a five-star review on the iTunes podcast app. That helps us let us know that we are giving you the material that you love and helps get our podcast out to others that could benefit from it. On today's podcast, I had the pleasure to sit down with Dr. Gabrielle Fundero. She's a former assistant professor of exercise science at Georgia Ginwick College and holds a PhD in human nutrition, foods, and exercise from Virginia Tech. More specifically, inside of this particular uh, t- discussion we had, we talked about probiotics and what exactly they are. Should we be taking them? How much is marketing versus how much is actually helpful for you? And it was a very eye-opening interview that we got to have. So without further ado, here is Dr. Gabrielle Fundero, and you guys enjoy this interview. Awesome. So thank you so much for for coming on the Train, Eat, Repeat podcast. Um, I came across your article on precision nutrition, um, which is actually who I got certified through. And I found the article so refreshing in the sense that there's so much, so many misconceptions when it comes to probiotics. I feel like it's one of the biggest uh, sort of buzzwords and gut biome is one of the biggest buzzwords out there mm-hmm. right now. Um and, and obviously, we'll, we'll unpack everything that you sort of talked about, even go a little bit further. But um, sort of give me an idea of, of what made that such a big interest for you, even to write your dissertation on it. Oh, you know what? That was um, really, it was just serendipitous. It wasn't something that I thought I was going to do much with. Um, but it came about because I was curious about some of the um, treatments and interventions that we were using in the lab. So to give some background, um, my lab was actually focused on skeletal muscle physiology and biochem. So we were really studying uh, skeletal muscle metabolism and peripheral metabolism. And so what we would do is, um, in, in part, we would use a rodent model or a cell culture model, and we would apply or inject lipopolysaccharide or LPS. And I was curious about the physiological relevance. I I wanted to know why we were using that. I understood that it would result in sort of a downstream inflammatory signaling cascade. But I always want to know, you know, is this something that's going to happen in the human body? And as it turns out, that was indeed something that happens in the human body. And it was mimicking in part this uh, postprandial or after meal event that was observed in uh, both rodents and humans in in that uh, after a really high fat meal, there was an increase in this circulating uh, LPS or in you know, individuals who were eating sort of a chronically uh, high fat, hypercaloric diet. They tended to have higher levels of this circulating LPS and also higher numbers of the receptors to which it would bind. And so I was wanted to sort of get to, you know, instead of, okay, we're, we're, we're injecting and then we're seeing what happens. 
what if we looked at, you know, why this is actually happening or where it's coming from? And it turns out that endotoxin comes from certain types of bacteria in the gut. And so I wanted to find, you know, some solution at that time, you know, because I thought, well, well surely there, there's got to be something we can do about it. And there was not initially an opportunity for me to do that because we weren't a GI lab. But lo and behold, we were able to procure some funding from uh, a probiotics company to use probiotics as an intervention, potentially, um, you know, providing some benefit uh, to, to the rodents, you know, eating their uh, habitually high fat diet. So I, because my initial study uh, was um, lost to, to human error, that was the one that was looking at just high fat feeding and hypertrophy, we switched my side project looking at probiotic supplementation to my main project. So that's what became my dissertation. And it was really just sort of a happy accident. Um, and then I, I didn't really do much with the gut microbiome. Uh, after I defended, I went on to teach and I taught for four years in, in sport nutrition and um, exercise science. And then it wasn't until I resigned from academia and went to coaching full time that I started to talk more about gut health and and to try to serve as sort of an evidence-based voice, um, you know, back in 2017 when it was an emerging topic, but I don't think it was as big as it is now. No, it's huge now. And I mean, everybody from Dr. Mark Hyman, who is always in uh, the media, he just had a new book come out to Dr. Michael Greger, um, you know, sort of the foremost experts around holistic health, if you will. Um, but but still, the gut biome comes up quite frequently. So going back to your studies to where we are now with mainstream media and how they use the word probiotic, what are some things that maybe you've learned or some things that we can educate the listeners about uh, in terms of what are probiotics and and who are they for and and what's like the purpose of of having them hmm. the current definition of probiotics which may which will likely change in the next few years uh, is live microorganisms that when ingested confer some benefit to the host okay. so they are Right now, they, they need to be alive, although there's some evidence emerging that even uh, dead or non-viable microbes might still have some influence in the gut. They are uh, microorganisms. Most of the time, they're bacteria, but we do actually have some yeast-containing probiotics. And they are generally ingested if we're talking about gastrointestinal health, although there are some other forms of um, suppository probiotics that would go into the, vag the vaginal canal. Um, and that's uh, sort of outside my, my purview, but I just know that those exist uh, and that they need to confer some benefit. So that's an important caveat because people are often using the term probiotic to talk about anything that contains bacteria. So all types of foods that are potentially fermented, they call them probiotic foods. But the actual definition really limits the number of foods that are considered to be probiotic to only fermented dairy. So that's currently the only probiotic food because that is the only food that has shown consistent benefit to the host. So not all types of bacteria that we would ingest Obviously, if we think about it like that, you know, there are some bacteria that we would ingest that would cause disease and those would not be considered to be probiotic. And then there are some that just haven't been studied. And so we don't have the evidence to support claims that they confer a benefit. 
So they may have other health benefits, but for the definition part of it, fermented dairy is the only one. And kefir, I believe you wrote in the article, mm-hmm. um, would be something that would be truly a probiotic. So yes. then what is the the benefit then of possibly eating those other foods that are marketed as probiotic healthy, if you will? Well, in some cases, we don't have any evidence of a benefit, (laughs) Um, either because the studies just haven't been done yet, or the studies have been done and they weren't, um, you know, they didn't uh, show a significant difference between people who had the fermented food and those who didn't, uh, or the evidence is just unclear at this point because, you know, it's, it's too mixed or it's, there's just such a limited amount. So for example, when we look at kombucha, which is a fermented tea beverage that a lot of people use and, and you know tout for its its probiotic benefits and its gut health benefits. There are there is one sort of cheeky systematic review on kombucha, and I say cheeky because they had only one study in it, and that's not really a systematic review. But the authors did that, I think, to make a point to say that we need to be very um, cautious and conservative about the claims that we're making, that, you know, there could certainly be some mechanistic evidence. And that means that maybe we've seen that there are some compounds in the tea that have been beneficial in a cell culture model, you know, but that doesn't mean that drinking the tea is beneficial to a human. Uh, and, And we also have no, even if there is mechanistic data to suggest that we would also need to know how much tea. So, you know, when we take these compounds out of the tea that we, we concentrate them. So how much tea would we have to drink? You know, just like how we saw with resveratrol and red wine, you know, the, the, the amount of red wine we'd have to ingest to uh, take in an adequate amount of resveratrol would so increase our risk of cancer that it's not, there's no net benefit. Um, So that's just one example with kombucha. With other types of ferments, it's not to say that there are no um, health benefits, but they just may not be probiotic, may not be something that actually, you know, is something that influences the gut biome. But in other cases, uh, fermentation may reduce the amount of uh, FODMAPs in a food. So that means that they can digest more easily. It can sometimes increase the shelf life. Sometimes it can increase the um, concentration of certain types of vitamins. So uh, there are benefits there. It's just that, you know, they might not be a benefit that's directly considered to be probiotic and that, you know, it's not changing the gut microbiome. It's not having an influence on, you know, our gastrointestinal tract. Um, and then, you know, there's, there's like very basic benefits of, you know, are you eating more kimchi? And so you're having more fiber, you know, and then you have the kind of the benefit of the fiber, but that's, that's um, lateral to it being fermented. So the ones that are considered a probiotic, so we're talking about fermented dairy, possibly even some strains that may be in a supplemental form. Mm -hmm. What are the direct health benefits or reasons a person should look into a probiotic? Mm. The direct health benefits are actually fairly limited uh, when we look at uh, pooled data. So to give people an idea of sort of the hierarchy of evidence, if we look at one double-blind randomized control trial. That means that we we usually have two groups. One group does not get the probiotic and the other group does get the probiotic. And when we say double-blind, that means that neither the researchers nor the participants know who got what. Mm-hmm. That's a really good way of um, creating uh, the, a quality study that gives us some quality data that we could potentially say, okay, 
yeah, we can be pretty confident that, you know, if the people who, who took a probiotic saw uh, some change and the people who didn't take the probiotics saw no change, that's some pretty solid evidence. And it's even better if we can do what's called crossing over or a crossover trial where we have people cross over, you know, once they've done the probiotic, and then they switch over to the placebo. And, um, and then we can kind of use people as their own controls. But we can take it a step farther because sometimes those studies, we might find one study that shows a benefit and another study that does not show a benefit. And so what we can do instead is do something like a systematic review or a meta-analysis, which is when we compile the information, the data from a bunch of studies and try to come up with uh, something of a consensus statement uh, and a secondary statistical analysis. So we can really determine what's the quality of evidence, what, how confident can we be in the studies that we have so far. Now, the problem with probiotics research is that there's no standardized um, dose or duration of, of probiotic. We have quite a few different strains of probiotics and the effects seem to be strain specific, uh, but the effects are also specific to the person or, or the group that's taking them. So we have a really hard time actually pooling the data in a way that um, yeah, you know, can bring us to a confident consensus statement. And what often happens is that that there's so much variability between those studies, researchers are sort of limited to saying, well, we can't say anything you know, conclusive at this time because about 50% of the studies showed a change and the other 50% didn't. Um, and there was such a difference in how they you know, um, planned their study that we really can't, you know, they're not comparable enough. So when we don't have a systematic review or meta-analysis available, then we kind of just have to look at the, the RCTs, those randomized control trials, and we can take a, a sort of a net balance approach and say, how many of these can I find? Okay, say I find 12, um, you know, are, are more of them saying that there is a benefit than those saying that there isn't a benefit then maybe we can be a little bit more uh, confident that there is a benefit. So, and that's even can... if somebody's going to take the <laughs> arduous task of searching out these studies. Yes, uh, yes. Something I don't necessarily enjoy, but do it because it's part of my job. But, but exactly. most people are not going to do that. They're not their yeah. own advocate in that case. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And we also have a positive publishing bias. So papers that show a difference are more likely to be published. So I just I say that to give people an idea of um, sort of the landscape, the climate of the literature at the moment. And to that end, the the um, applications for which we've seen more consistent benefit would be for the uh, alleviation or um, reduction of the intensity. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, people could call it like a treatment or maybe a prevention of diarrhea that's associated with antibiotics or traveling. So like an infectious diarrhea or pediatric diarrhea. Um, and then some symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome and some symptoms of inflammatory bowel disease. So those are more consistently uh, where we see at least modest benefit. There's emerging evidence that perhaps probiotic supplementation or uh, especially fermented dairy might be beneficial in, um, I'll say conservatively, like supporting our immune system and potentially reducing uh, the, the incidence or severity of upper respiratory tract infections. And that's been studied a, a little bit more 
uh, commonly in athletic populations, but they've seen it in, in general population as well. And fermented dairy has also been associated with improvements in lipid levels. So not necessarily a probiotic supplementation like a pill, but still would be considered a probiotic food. So those are, are where we kind of across the board see, yeah, in most cases, people do see some benefit. The areas where we see kind of a 50-50 split would be in uh, relation to weight modification. So it could be that, you know, if we're looking at um, weight modification affecting the lipid levels, then potentially we're seeing an improvement in that study, but it's not directly associated with improvements in actual weight modification itself. And, right, it's not going to be a magic pill or anything. Right, like exactly. That. Yeah. Yes, yeah, and that's what we, you know, that's really what was was the the focus of my dissertation. Um, you know, we looked in both humans, then, or excuse me, in rodents, and we looked at humans later. And and as it turns out, you know, taking a probiotic is not going to reduce um, um, the weight gain that's associated with an extra thousand calories a day from a milkshake. <laughs> um, so so that wasn't uh, you know incredibly surprising for me to see. So um, so yeah, those are kind of like the applications that we have. Um, some confidence in at the moment. And I would say the, the area that is probably uh, most overhyped and overstated would be that of probiotic supplementation for mood disorders like uh, anxiety, depression, um, or autism spectrum disorder that, that people are really putting the cart before the, the horse in those cases. So talk a little bit about, because obviously we just, we're in the middle of a pandemic. I don't even want to say that we're through the pandemic because yeah. people are still getting sick. And, mm-hmm. and one of the biggest things that comes up when you talk about gut biome or or just a healthy digestive system mm-hmm. is the fact that it is immune boosting if you have a good one. And mm-hmm. also the fact that your metabolism runs better when you have a healthier gut. And we start talking about food sensitivities and, and, mm-hmm. and things of those nature. How do, what what is the, I, I guess, the process in which that probiotics could uh, or, or the marketing that's out there that says that it can improve these things. Is there any uh, anything there to like sort of grab onto or is it mostly just marketing at that point? Well, when we're talking about food sensitivities, that is definitely marketing. Um, food sensitivity is really a big buzzword at the moment. And I think uh, people sometimes use it in sort of an umbrella fashion to refer to both food allergies and food intolerances. And those do actually exist. But a food sensitivity, something that would be um, ostensibly identified through an IgG food, uh, antibody test, that is complete science fiction, totally made up, absolute marketing malarkey. Uh, the, the antibodies that are detected by that test are recognition antibodies. It's a tolerance antibody. And so what you'll end up seeing on that test is a list of foods that you eat often <laughs> uh, that, that your immune system has identified as not being um, you know, a pathogen. So that, that one is completely made up and, and pretty frustrating because it's very misleading. But as far as food allergies and food intolerances, there is some evidence that the development, like early life development of the gut microbiome may play a role in the development of food allergies and also um, skin, skin allergies, so like atopic uh, types of diseases, things like eczema. Um, although it's that we haven't established a causative link there yet. There is just a correlation. So that means that the two things tend to happen at the same time. So if a person is using uh, antibiotics very early in life, or they were born via C-section rather than a vaginal birth, that that's associated with uh, changes in the early life microbiome and sort of a, a different 
um, uh, evolution of the microbiome in those early years compared to infants that are born vaginally. And that's been correlated with with, uh, greater incidence of allergies. But when it comes to a food intolerance, a food intolerance is due to the lack of a digestive enzyme. And in some cases, it's just that humans don't make those digestive enzymes. So when we're talking about dietary fibers um, or the long polysaccharides that we see in beans, we just don't have those digestive enzymes. It's not that we have a, you know, a deficit on accident. We've just evolved not to have those. And the native biome ferments those for us. So it's not something that we would really need to take a probiotic for. Uh, If it's something like lactose, there are some people that do create lactase, the digestive enzyme, and some that don't. So they have um, lactose intolerance. And while a probiotic may not directly help with that, uh, if they did use a fermented dairy product, that would have less lactose in it. And so they could potentially, that might be more digestible to them. So the application of probiotics in those cases really isn't uh, supported by the evidence, uh, but the native biome would, would really be, you know, sort of the target for for future studies looking at its role in the development of, of allergies and, um, you know, whether it's skin allergies or, or seasonal allergies or food allergies. Okay. And what about uh, digestive enzyme supplementation? That's also another thing that I see quite frequently in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. So there are pharmaceutical digestive enzymes for people who uh, whose pancreas doesn't produce some of the enzymes that they would need, and those are effective. So there are things that you would not get over the counter. The over the counter enzymes that do confer some benefit would be lactase. So that's for helping with the digestion of dairy, and then also beta galactosidase. So that's sold as like. Vino is, is one of the brand names, and that helps with the, um, the types of FODMAPs, the fermentable uh, polysaccharides that we would find in beans. Um, but the, there, there's really a, sort of a, a Goldilocks effect there, I guess, or, or some form of that. So if you have a, a ton of beans or a ton of dairy, uh, you, you may need to you know, really increase the enzyme amount there. And there's also a, a, a time um, effect. So if you take your lactase enzyme and then have dairy you know, many hours later, it's not going to be effective. So you really need to take those two at the same time and still have a, you know, a modest serving size and follow the you know, manufacturer's instructions for, for taking a couple of the tablets at once. And that can provide some benefit. But the other digestive enzymes that people are, are often promoting are things that are meant to break down proteins and uh, in, in or, or fats. Humans are, it, unless we have a genetic, a, a genetic disorder and we're not producing the enzymes to break down uh, fats and amino acids and digestible carbohydrates, we're making those enzymes on demand. So we don't need to take more of those. And also it's important to realize that enzymes are very sensitive to pH, so the acidity level, and uh, they will not be active outside of their very narrow pH range. So if you take one that is active at a pH of, you know, three or four, uh, you know, something that we have in the mouth or a pH of five, and then you ingest it and it hits your stomach acid with a pH of one, it's going to be unfolded or denatured and it's not going to be active. So by the time it gets to your small intestine, it's just going to be a bunch of uh, amino acids and it's not right. going to be helpful to you. 
So now we're spending money just to basically put it in the toilet. Yes, that's <laughs> at the exactly. end of the day. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so obviously, there's there are benefits to taking probiotics. There's a lot of things that are marketed that they they end up doing, but most of it just again hasn't been proven to be mm-hmm. true. Yeah. So then, is there really a situation? other than those ones you've already mentioned where you think probiotic usage from a supplementation standpoint is worth the time or are you simply looking to see if they have those uh, those symptoms? Yeah, I really would say that it is based on a need. So I'm, I'm definitely not an advocate for taking things just because, uh, you know, in part because they're expensive. And also, you know, if we consider that, you know, there's probably no benefit and there could be potentially some risks, although they're minimal. It's not that that probiotics are completely without risk. So there have been some studies uh, illustrating that, you know, in people with uh, like an inflammatory bowel disease, if they have really large ulcers, there could be translocation or movement of the bacteria or fungi uh, through those ulcers. So they leave the digestive tract and they go into the blood and that could cause an infection. There's also uh, one study that documented um, a sort of a delay of the reestablishment of the biome after healthy people had taken antibiotics. So they did this on purpose. They took healthy people and gave them antibiotics and they wanted to see whether probiotics or a fecal transplant, uh, a self fecal transplant would help, you know, to reestablish the biome versus doing nothing. And as it turns out, the people who did the self fecal transplant, so they, they kept their feces from before the antibiotics and then they used those to repopulate their intestines. They had the most rapid recovery and the people who did nothing had the second most rapid recovery. And the people who took the probiotic had uh, what the authors described as a form of dysbiosis. So it was altered compared to the other groups and it was really reduced in diversity. There was, there was a sort of an overabundance of the probiotic lactobacilli strain. Uh, so with, you know, with that sort of evidence, It's something that I think we need to weigh the pros and cons. And then like, what's the cost? (laughs) Just, you know, how much money am I spending? Uh, So if there's not an application and you're, you're a healthy person, then it's probably not necessary. It's not like a a multivitamin where we just, you know, take it every day. So in terms of, of having the right kind of bacteria in your gut biome, Mm -hmm. can you have too much? Because I've also heard you can take it to extremes and then they talk about, you know, bacterial overgrowth Mm -hmm. and, and, and those types of things. How does that sort of play into all this? Yeah. The interesting thing about um, the characterization of the biome is that it's very qualitative. (laughs) So we do have, you know, we can, we can quantify, but it's sort of a representative quantification, knowing that we don't have all of the barcodes that we need to identify who's there. And when we're looking at relative abundances, well, we're looking at relative abundances. So it's sort of we're looking at, you know, percentages and we don't have one profile of a healthy gut that we use as sort of a reference range to say this is, you know, okay, you're supposed to have this many F. prausnitii and this many lactobacilli and this many bacteroides. We just don't have that data. And people uh, pool by region. So our healthy people in Korea look different from the healthy people in the United States. Now, you could develop um, a small intestine bacterial overgrowth 
that is a thing that can actually occur. We don't really know the causes for that. There are some uh, factors that might predispose a person to it, like if they have short bowel syndrome. Um, so they have like a there's like an, an anatomical uh, issue with the with the gut. Um, there is an association with long term use of of PPIs to control acid. Um, so that could potentially modulate the pH of the small intestine and make it more hospitable to bacteria that are not really supposed to be there. And uh, so there could be some backflow of those bacteria into the small intestine. But uh, that is hard to to diagnose. Uh, People are usually using breath tests and the accuracy of those is very low. Kind of the the closest thing to a gold standard would be a duodenal aspirate. So they go into the very first part of the small intestine closest to your stomach and they um, take a little sample of the goop there and then they they quantify um the, the number of bacteria there and if it's above um sort of a cutoff threshold then it would be indicative of of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and there are usually some other symptoms that go along with that but it's it's not as common as i think people make it out to be and it's not something that you can just diagnose by looking at a person or just because a person has gas or something like that you know so, sure. so that one is definitely uh i think overhyped as well um uh, but we do we we, we expect to see in the realm of tens of trillions of microbes in the gut. So there's a about a, a couple there's a, there's a couple pounds of biomass of bacteria uh, from the beginning of your small intestine uh, to your rectum, and most of them are going to be in the colon or in the large intestine. Um, so about you know ninety seven percent of your microbiome is there, uh, and we do tend to see we tend to expect to see some um, taxa, some groups of organisms that are common to humans. So we have sort of a, a human specific core biome and then and that's about one third of anyone's biome is probably going to look it's probably going to have those those species and then about two thirds is, is individual. So we have a lot of just person to person variability that make it really difficult to say this is this person's, uh, you know, the example of a healthy microbiome and this other person is is an even healthier microbiome. You know, we just don't have that. So that's why we don't have a profile of an unhealthy one either. You know, we don't have really like good or bad. We just kind of have this person and this person and maybe the person with the disease and what we consider to be dysbiosis, that's the healthiest possible microbiome that they have. You know, it's adapted to the challenges. How much does it play a role in terms of having a healthy gut biome and its ability to absorb nutrients from the food that you're eating? So for instance, if I have somebody who's considered healthy, which again, that's a very general term, and yet they have nutrient deficiencies, um, you know, vitamin D, obviously when the pandemic was out, that was a huge thing about, you know, supplementing with that. How much does that mm-hmm. play a role in having a healthy gut biome, uh, the usage of a probiotic and, and nutrient sort of absorption? Hmm. Well, we can kind of look at two different aspects there. So we have human, um, so we have the host uh, ability to digest and absorb and assimilate nutrients. So that means that our digestive tract has to be, you know, free of, a, of an anatomical disease uh, or, you know, various functional diseases so that the we have the digestive enzymes required to break down our proteins, carbs, um, and, and fats to their smallest parts. And then we get those into the intestinal cells, package them up if need be, and then we transport them into circulation and then they go to the tissues. There are going to be, uh, there's going to be some 
portion of the carbohydrates that are going to be indigestible. So those are, those are the micro accessible carbohydrates. And those are going to pass through the small intestine where the majority of our absorption takes place. And they're going to reach the large intestine where they can be fermented by the uh, microbes there. And those microbes are either going to produce uh, gases for the most part. They can also produce um, some other compounds if they're fermenting amino acids that are sometimes associated with colorectal cancer. And they're also going to be producing short chain fatty acids. And some of those short chain fatty acids like butyrate and propionate are associated with uh, in, with uh, metabolic health, so like insulin sensitivity, appetite regulation, um, and even uh, most recently with exercise performance. So propionate in rodents has been associated with improved uh, endurance exercise. And we find that in athletic populations, they have both uh, enhanced microbial diversity and elevated numbers of these butyrate producers. So it seems to be uh, associated with, um, you know, good physical health if we have uh, an abundance, some abundance of these butyrate producers. Uh, and, and as they're producing these short chain fatty acids, they are harvesting energy from the diet. So they have taken uh, carbohydrates that are indigestible to us. So we can't release the energy from those compounds and they have converted them to short chain fatty acids that are available to us. So there is an estimated energy contribution of anywhere from zero to 200 calories a day uh, by way of, of that fermentation process. But their influence in our ability to digest and absorb what is digestible and absorbable to us is probably fairly minimal uh, because those are kind of two separate processes. That being said, the even though this is not something we can show in humans, in rodents who are grown without any microbiome at all, so they're born into sterile conditions and they're kept in sterile conditions forever, they really fail to thrive. They're resistant to weight gain. They uh, don't have, you know, and they experience um, uh, incomplete nervous system development, behavioral alterations, uh, blunted immune development. So in that respect, there is an influence, but in, in humans, um, it's just not really known yet how they might, you know, directly influence our actual digestive process, but they do indeed harvest energy for us. And they also produce really small amounts of some vitamins, um, not enough that, that like we could just not eat those vitamins at all, or, you know, not sure. turn them from the diet. But for example, like they, they produce a little bit of vitamin K, but it wouldn't be enough for us if we were not getting any from the diet. Okay. And you've touched on diet and also sort of having a healthier lifestyle in terms of exercise. Mm -hmm. And what I found interesting in the article was that that's like the two things that people can do <laughs> other than take a probiotic. It's actually probably better than taking a probiotic to mm -hmm. improve their gut biome. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, it's not like the sexiest, most exciting recommendation. Um, you know, and it's not, uh, it's not something that like a pill that someone can take, you know, and, and so I understand it takes more time and effort to invest in physical activity and, um, you know, and I and I a, a diverse um, plant centric way of eating. And that doesn't mean plant exclusive, 
but just that plants are a, um, a, a common inhabitant of one's diet. So they're making an appearance at most meals and that we're, we're getting a, a variety of different plant foods. So it doesn't have to be just vegetables, but vegetables, fruits, whole grains, legumes, um, some plant sources of protein, uh, in addition to if someone wants to include, you know, animal sources of protein, uh, especially something like, you know, fermented dairy, um, you know, that that has pretty clear benefits. So that in association with regular physical activity seem to be two of the strongest determinants of microbial diversity that we could potentially have uh, some influence over. So uh, things like our, you know, where we were born, our gender uh, or, or our biological sex at birth, um, our, uh, our age, ethnicity, these are things that we can't control and that do exert some influence um, or, or even our genes. But our genes play, uh, have a, a, a lower um, influence. So, so they explain less of the sort of inter-individual variability than things like our, our lifestyle habits do. Would environment also be a factor? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we, we're not sure exactly why, but as I had mentioned earlier, it, it, we when we compare uh, healthy controls or, or even um, people who have uh, obesity or type 2 diabetes, when we look at them in terms of taxonomy of who is in the gut, what, what organisms are there, they are starkly different. So, so they will not um, sort of cluster together, uh, you know, by, um, by like body size, for example, they'll cluster together by where those people live uh, more so than, than even diet or physical activity. But when we look at, the genetic level, when we look at um, the functionality of the microbiome, and we're looking at, you know, not who's there, but what, what can they do in the functional diversity, that clusters less by region and more by um, body size. So individuals with um, obesity or type 2 diabetes they will tend to have lower functional diversity than individuals in uh, with a lower BMI. And they don't cluster so much by region. So a person in, in the UK and a person in the United States, if both of those individuals have obesity, they're going to have more similar microbiomes with that lower functional diversity compared to individuals with um, lower BMIs. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So in t- not to backtrack too much, but you said mostly a plant diet. So we can say mostly plant-based, if you will. I know mm-hmm. there's so many definitions in terms of your lacto-avo vegetarian or yeah. you're vegan, but mm-hmm. is, is most of that uh, benefit from the simple fact of the fiber that you're getting, the vitamins, the nutrients, and, and, in, and then why is meat uh, I don't want to say it's bad, but you're almost alluding to the fact that an over meat consumption, so something like the carnivore diet would not necessarily be good for the gut biome. Right. Yeah. So we have to um, keep in mind that even though we talk about the gut biome as sort of like one thing, you know, this, this sort of like one organism, it really is more of an ecosystem. So it's made of these tens of trillions of microorganisms, mostly bacteria, 
We do have some fungi in there like yeasts. And then we have archaea, which are similar to bacteria. And they have uh, quite often sort of a, a, a symbiotic or, or, or cooperational sort of like collaborative relationship with the bacteria. So all of these organisms are vying for both nutrients and real estate, and they're going to be regulated to some extent by pH uh, and oxygen availability. So when we take microbes that are living in um, an anaerobic environment, they really are going to rely on glucose. So they're going to rely on those microbe accessible carbohydrates that pass through the small intestine and get to the large intestine. So they're not accessible to us. We're like, we can't use this. So here you can have it. And they're like, thanks, I needed this. I need this to make energy. This is my food. So if we completely eradicate all forms of microbe accessible carbohydrate from the diet, and we're only ingesting plant foods, now all of those organisms that really relied on glucose, that really relied on the, the um, you know carbohydrate portion of the diet, they will fail to thrive. So they may die out and we'll see a loss of, of diversity and a loss of sort of functionality in that group. Now we have plenty of uh, proteins available. So we have plenty of amino acids available and there are microbes that can ferment those amino acids. They can use those as energy and they're producing um, some short chain fatty acids still, but not to the same extent as the ones that were fermenting the carbohydrates. And in addition to some of those uh, short chain fatty acids, they're also producing some other compounds like indoles and, and P-cresol that are associated with uh, colorectal cancer. So there are these sort of um, amino acid fermentation byproducts that could play a role in an inflammatory cascade or, you know, tumor genesis. Not to say that it's causative, but potentially, you know, there's some mechanism, there's a mechanism there of action um, that could explain why, you know, there are some dietary patterns that are more associated with the development of colorectal cancer. So that's why, you know, if we're looking at the extremes, that would not be beneficial because we're reducing the nutrient availability. So obviously if we reduce overall nutrient availability, we're just going to have a reduction in the number and the diversity of microbes that are living in the gut. And we're going to have potentially an, uh, an over, not an overgrowth, but a relative increase in the abundance of those that can thrive on, on, you know, um, animal proteins, but in, in that case would be producing many more of those potentially harmful compounds. Now, when we have a prudent omnivorous diet, the microbes will, will prefer to use the carbohydrate sources. So we still may get some amino acid fermentation, but we're also going to get plenty of carbohydrate fermentation. And so we may not see the same levels of those potentially harmful, um, you know, byproducts. How we, we talked a little bit about environment, but obviously part of your environment is how your food is sourced um, mm. and, and a big push around, you know, grass fed, grass finished, organic. Um, mm -hmm. How much does that play a role, if at all, in terms of the types of bacteria and or toxins that can disrupt your digestive system? Well, we are still in the early infancy stages of looking at how environmental um, pollutants might influence the microbiome. So there are some that, you know, we've, we've been able to look at the microbiomes of other organisms like bees or fish, um, you know, so some of these organisms that are really, really super small and that are exposed to these um, potential pollutants um, at, at higher concentrations than we are uh, day to day. And, you know, and, and 
changes have been observed. So it's certainly something to be cognizant of that we're probably going to see, you know, in the next couple of decades that, yeah, there are some things that are in the environment, you know, POPs and whatnot that have influenced our microbiome. And that could be part of the explanation for why we, you know, people look different in in the UK versus the US and, and Korea and so on. But um, when it comes to, you know, the influence of like organic versus conventional or something that's grass fed or not, even when we look at the chemical a breakdown of those foods, the differences are so minuscule that they're really not physiologically relevant in, in the amounts that humans are ingesting. So if we take, you know, the omega-3 fatty acid content of red meat, it's already so incredibly low that even if we have a 50% increase, it's still incredibly low. So it's not really a meaningful increase for us. But what we do see is that we actually uh, are sometimes, um, our microbiome can be influenced or, or temporary, like temporarily um, inhabited by microbes that we ingest from our food. So it's not that it's, it's not that they're pro- probiotic foods. It's just that food is dirty. So if we think about all of the hands that have touched the apples and the produce and everything that we're eating, um, you know, even if, if we rinse it off or if we wash it off with water, we're probably ingesting less. But there are microbes in the actual plants as well. There are microbes that are that get into the leaves of the plants, into the places that we can't actually, you know, wash them, um, wash them away. And uh, so that's another thing that's been found in in the literature is that you know, our dietary habits influence the microbiome both in providing nutrients for our microbes, but also introducing uh, environmental microbes. And uh, even if they don't move in permanently as residents, they could still interact with the microbes that we have and and potentially cause some downstream effects. But also could be a good thing, right? Like, like the, like exposing yourself, obviously dosage matters, Mm -hmm. um, but exposing yourself to the environment can actually boost your immune system, or at least that's what it's talked about. So now, you know, we have COVID and we have the prevalence of using hand sanitizers and then you're touching receipt mm-hmm. paper. And now you have PCB going into your system. Um, and not to get too off topic, but I mean, I think that it's pretty clear, like if, it, if it's that small of a difference and there's other organisms that are going to make your way into your digestive system anyway, would you say that there's even a point in buying organic or is there still, is it just sort of inconclusive to that point? If people are um, if people are concerned about sort of the influence on the environment, potentially there is some benefit to buying local uh, because that's reducing transport of foods, uh, you know, across the country because transport in itself is going to contribute to, to pollution. So buying local and in season is one way to. Um, you know, maybe exert less of, of an impression on the environment in a way that could be potentially harmful. But buying organic is really um, something of a marketing ploy, uh, in part because the, the, nu- the nutrient density of those foods doesn't differ based on it being organic. It can differ based on the farming practices and the soil quality, which could be associated with organic farming practices, but also could be uh, done via conventional farming practices as well. If people are concerned about genetically modified organisms or genetically modified foods as being part of, you know, conventional farming, uh, I would 
um, encourage them to keep in mind that there are very few uh, GM products that are actually on the market in the U.S. There are different ones in other parts of the world. And mostly they're used either in manufacturing or for animal feed. So what we are actually eating, uh, you know, that's potentially GM is is really limited and, and probably most often we'd be eating like GM soy, but there's again, no, and there, there have been lots, we have a lot of data uh, over the course of many years comparing the ingestion of GM versus uh, non-GM foods. And there is no difference in terms of nutrient quality or effects on human health. And in fact, if we're talking about an economic uh, or environmental influence, people might want to read up or, 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 um, there's a real cool documentary on it too, looking at the rainbow papaya and how a GM rainbow papaya actually saved that aspect of Hawaii's economy back in the late nineties, because they were really being wiped out by the ring spot virus. Um, so if that's a concern, then hopefully that, that would help to alleviate some of those. And then in terms of, um, you know, uh, its effect on, on the gut, uh, or pesticides. I think pesticides are probably the other, the other concern. So pesticides are still used in organic for farming. They're just different types of pesticides. And, and something being um, a non-man-made chemical does not mean that it's not harmful. So one example would be rotenone is a pesticide that's used in organic farming. And I have personally used rotenone to effectively kill my mitochondria <laughs> to effectively shut them down. So rotenone will absolutely 100% kill you if you ingest it in, in, in high enough amounts, right. which you wouldn't in either case. So in, in, and when it comes to gut health, you know, making the, the choice between organic and conventional really makes no difference except that or, organic is much more expensive. So if buying conventional means that you can afford a wider variety of fruits and vegetables and whole grains and all the plant stuff, that's going to be better for your gut microbiome. Interesting. I think that opens things up a lot for people because again, I think a lot of it, and as we've discussed over the course of this conversation is how much is it marketing versus how much is it truth? And the more and more that we talk and I talk to other experts, there's a lot of marketing hype, not a whole lot of truth behind it. Yes. So if you were to run down and recap everything we've just covered, because we, we we've sort of pieced together some some sort of facts, if you will, about just probiotics in general and about mm -hmm. what it means to build or how to build a, even though I'm going to use it as a blanket term, a healthy gut biome, what it would be like a checklist for somebody who says, I just want to be a healthy individual with a healthy gut biome. And I, you know, do I need to take a probiotic or do I not? Right. Yeah. So I would say there is um, a hierarchy and, and this is something that I've, uh, I'll do a shameless plug. I've got a book coming out sometime, sometime later this year through Renaissance periodization. Um, and, and they like to use pyramids and, um, 3DMJ likes to use pyramids. Everyone in the industry, Everybody. Likes to use pyramids. Yeah. yeah. So, so I have the pyramid of, um, of sort of, you know, practical applications in, in gut health science. And the foundation of that pyramid would be both physical activity and um, the, the dietary diversity, because there really is sort of a, a tri-directional relationship there in that adequate nutrient intake supports movement, 
And both of those together support a diverse microbiome and adequate movement with inadequate fiber has, does not seem to confer the same benefits to the microbiome. So even in people who are, are fit bodybuilders, uh, but they're ingesting inadequate fiber, they don't see that increase in diversity that we would expect to see um, compared to sedentary people. Now, is there a type of movement that seems to be better versus others, cardio versus strength training? Any, any studies on that? We don't have any studies really on, on resistance training outside of the one that I mentioned, looking at bodybuilders. There is, uh, I, I'm collaborating with a researcher out of Lipscomb University in Tennessee, uh, and we are doing really the first of its kind. We're actually looking at resistance training in athletes um, and some few a few other factors. So we'll have, uh, we, we didn't use resistance training as an intervention and looking at how it affects the microbiome, uh, but these are athletes that are are, you know, engaging uh, in resistance training. So hopefully we can, you know, gain a little bit more information, but we're really looking at how resistance training is, is uh, associated with GI distress. And if we can make some predictions about that GI distress based on their baseline uh, microbiome. But the vast majority of evidence is looking at people who are either recreational exercisers or people who are elite, you know, cyclists and marathoners. And the general trend is that greater cardiovascular fitness is associated with greater microbial diversity and people who are at least meeting the World Health Organization recommendations for exercise, uh, they have greater diversity compared to sedentary controls and that you don't have to be an elite cyclist to have uh, greater microbial diversity, but you have to be cycling more. <laughs> so more exercise volume appears to be associated with um, greater microbial diversity. And is, is there a dosage and average dosage that you need to hit? Is it, is it time? Is it, is it distance? Is it, um, you know, rate of perceived exertion? Yeah, it, we don't have, um, the evidence yet to make like really specific recommendations about the actual dose that a person would need. Uh, but, you know, looking at the people who you know, even are meeting World Health Organization recommendations, which is something like, you know, 30 minutes of uh, moderate physical activity, five days a week you know, of aerobic activity. So I would say start there that, you know, if you can add in or, you know, if, if you are not doing any, that might be a lot to start with. But, you know, as much as a person can, um, you know, get their heart rate up it, to the point where they're, they're noticed that they're, you know, a little bit out of breath um, and can keep that up for several minutes at a time, you know, working up from there to, to trying to hit that, you know, roughly 30 minutes a day, five days a week. That's probably a good place to start uh, because it's, you know, people are probably not having like the four hours a week or four hours a day of, of cycling training availability, you know, that we're seeing in, in those elite cyclists. But we've seen it with, uh, like I mentioned, marathoners, rugby players, swimmers, um, that, you know, pr probably all types of movement is beneficial, uh, but that, that diet really matters. So if you're not ingesting adequate fiber, you're not providing those microbes with enough energy. And so we're not going to see, you know, greater abundances and greater diversity. Hmm. And mostly plant-based, correct? Okay. Yeah. So we yeah. have movement, we have a mostly plant-based diet. Mm -hmm. What else? On top of that, it would be uh, managing uh, sleep and stress 
mostly because that is also supportive of immune function and supportive of making those choices about the diet and engaging in that physical activity. There are some evidence in rodents that stress may influence the microbiome uh, that has yet to be um, really, you know, played out in humans. Um, and then also that circadian, circadian rhythms uh, may also play a role. So, so the biome itself displays some rhythmicity that we see uh, greater increases in, in those kind of like shorter lifespan uh, fermenters during the day when we're eating, and then they might die off a little bit at night. And then we have, uh, you know, higher relative abundance of those that have greater longevity and can handle, you know, a lower nutrient availability. Um, so probably, you know, if, as much as we can sleep when it's dark out and be awake when it's light out, that's not realistic for every person. Uh, and then on top of that, the very top of the pyramid is, is where we're looking at, you know, supplementation as needed if we are experiencing some, um, you know, disease or, or temporary, um, you know, digestive distress, uh, at, and, and, you know, take it for the time that we're experiencing the distress and then just go back to our, our normal daily activities, um, thereafter. So not something we should be taking all the time. Yeah, it's, it's just, uh, you know, it gets to be pretty expensive with no real benefit. Uh, but yeah, when we have the appropriate applications, it, it sure can be helpful to, you know, if you uh, have some traveler's diarrhea and you take Esbulardi, um, there's pretty solid evidence showing that you won't have it for as long as someone who doesn't take Esbulardi. So sure. That and that's talking more about the specific strain mm -hmm. of a probiotic that is specifically meant to treat X symptom, correct? Yep. Yep. Exactly. Okay. Yep. Okay. So that's the pyramid. Awesome. So where can, uh, or what else do you have for our, our listeners in regards to probiotic in terms of gut health? Um, again, I feel like it's a very, uh, market heavy education for most people. Um, mm -hmm. you know, and that's why it's important to have people like you experts in the field who are looking at these studies, evaluating them and, and sort of dispelling a lot of things that, um, most people think to be true because they're not going to be their own advocate. But what are some like lasting, uh, sort of comments for, uh, the listeners? I think the biggest takeaway would be to watch out for someone trying to sell you uh, a problem. So you'll buy their solution. If they're making causative claims about the gut microbiome, if they're saying things like dysbiosis causes X or um, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth causes X, or they're using a term like food sensitivity, those are some red flags that the person may have um, an incomplete understanding about the gut microbiome and its role in human health and disease, and that potentially you may be spending money and time on interventions that are not evidence-based. Okay, excellent. And where can people find you? Uh, on Instagram and Facebook at vitamin PhD. My website is vitaminphdnutrition.com. And I also run btgcomprehensivecoaching.com, which is my platform uh, to and collaboration with Shannon Beer, in which we talk about all things coaching related. I am starting um, next month, I'm going to be starting a series called Gut Health with Gab. So I will be running webinars to talk about topics that, that people ask me to talk about for the most part. So I'm going to be doing some introductory things, but, um, you know, I want to ask people's or answer people's burning questions as best I can. Thanks for listening to Train, Eat, Repeat. 
Connect with us on Instagram at fit underscore ferrant or at traineatrepeat.co. Until next time, stay strong, stay healthy.